Hola, and welcome to episode three of the Emigre podcast. I'm Dominic Hilton in Buenos Aires, and I'm about to be joined by Emigre writer A.S.H. Smythe in, of all places, the Falkland Islands. And before we begin, full disclosure, I've known Senor Smythe for many years, even somewhat disastrously playing the role of best man at his wedding. That was back in England, but we haven't spent a great deal of time there together over the years. I've been, well, where I've been, and Smythe has been in Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, South Africa, and now the ends of the earth. According to his bio on the Emigre website, S.H. Smythe is a freelance writer, breakfast radio presenter, and very occasional poet. Smythe, are you there? I am, I'm afraid. So what we probably ought to talk about today is, of course, the weather. Oh. Oh, gladly, gladly. I, I keep thinking about you. How is it with you? It's, it has been a furnace over here. I've never quite experienced anything like it. We've been hitting sort of 117, 118 degrees, um, and it's been torrid. Uh, I, I, I imagine it is uh, somewhat different in your part of the world. Well, yes, indeed it is. Um, the sun is currently blazing through the window sufficiently that I have to put the curtain at an angle so I can even look at the computer screen. However, in the Falklands, uh, the, the standard joke goes that you can have all four seasons in a day. You can fairly easily have most of them in an hour or indeed any given five minute window. This is a country where lots of people have several jobs, but one of mine is hosting the breakfast show on Falklands Radio. So I'm the first person in the building. Usually I'm certainly the first person on air uh, and it's okay in, in what is currently the summer. The sun starts to come up around about 4, 4.30 in the morning, whether you like it or not. So getting up at 5 and going to work for about 6 isn't too horrendous. But uh, in the middle of winter, when I leave the studio at 9 a.m. and it's still dark, that can be a bit grim. Um, <laughs> but, but there we go. So I, so I read the weather report, which is apparently essential for... Uh, maritime purposes and indeed for sheep farming my guess is that anyone professionally engaged well the maritime guys i think have uh better satellite related stuff on their boats probably rather more specific to them 200 miles off the coast is, is quite a big uh, radius and the sheep guys uh, as i discovered in a bit of a sort of micro gap yearing holiday over christmas they're going to have to go out and work whatever the weather so they don't bother looking at the forecast but, but their sheep's lives depend upon your words. Is that right? The sheep's lives depend on the weather. I think my words are an unfortunate uh, byproduct. Um, of the weather? Yes, we, of the weather. Yeah, we give, we give uh, tips as to the, uh, the sheep chill factor. Um, tips? And in, tips. Yeah, well, yeah like, bet, like betting tips for the 430 at Ascot. Right, right. Uh, right. So the, uh, the advice... The higher the number, the higher the sheep fuel factor. And so if animals are in exposed areas, which is funny because that is basically uh, yeah. the entire country. Is there anything or else? Or they have recently been shorn, then I assume the sheep farmers are supposed to try and keep them indoors. I mean, not in their front room, but some people do. Well, in their bedrooms. Um, I'm uh, <laughs> so, so, but, but on, on those points, I mean, two things that firstly, I'm right in thinking that you have no trees there, right? Or is that just one of those kind of sort of unfair myths that sort of circulates? And the other thing is, is you basically have no ozone layer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on the trees point, it's, it's certainly true enough 
to be reasonable. There are some trees, um, and I think historically there were probably rather more, but in any that existed when the first uh, whaling and sealing blokes got here probably got chopped down pretty quick. Then everyone realised that there were relatively few raw materials here, including for building uh, any kind of shelter with. So most of that kind of stuff historically has been imported and still is. I thought it was because they blew down because of the howling gales, the constant howling gales. Well, <laughs> incessant howling gales. So yeah, uh, winds winds up to four, six, and seven are, are not remotely unusual. That's that's just pretty standard. No one is going to bother commenting on being a windy day until you get to eight, which is gale force. The first thing you see pretty much when you arrive at the Royal Air Force base where the international flights come in is uh, a significant number of trees. And if you've done a bit of reading on the Falklands, you think, oh, see, they were kidding about there being no trees. You then don't see any trees between there where they've been uh, carefully planted and tended all the way back to Stanley, basically. Um, it's just for show. They're just for show, like Lego trees. Pre-COVID, you could get here via uh, Chile, and they had recently opened a flight that was once a month, I think, which came from Sao Paulo. But I've never seen either of those in action. Same with the enormous floating hotels, cruise ships that are supposed to put into yeah. Stanley Harbour on a regular basis and all the occupants um, disembark and just sort of storm the town like a plague of locusts. I've never seen that either. And I'm not, I have to say, frankly, that sad about that. Although economically, I imagine most of the uh, business folk of Stanley would prefer they were rather more. Well, of course, one of the great ironies or pluses about about our current circumstances, that just sort of hark back to the introduction for a second, is that, you know, our friendship has, has been going on for, for some time now, um, but we always seem to be in different countries. And finally, we're actually in the same sort of geographical time zone. Um, and uh, we can't get anywhere near each other um, for, for deeply political reasons. So uh, I could not have yeah. set it up better, frankly. You know, oh, I'd love to come visit you, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't got the clothes for it, though. Yeah, it's like some sort of philosopher's paradox, you know, just, just how close can you get uh, physically, geographically, not to say uh, politically on the map, and yet be about as far away. Uh, for me to get to uh, Buenos Aires, I would guess currently would mean flying to Bryce Norton, then going to yeah. Heathrow, then flying yeah. to where, Miami or something? Right. But of course, and, and the other thing, I, I, I don't know the answer to this. But I would speculate in all seriousness that you'd have trouble getting in here. Now, I, I don't know whether you would just because it would create a diplomatic fuss. But um, if you don't actually, if you don't have a diplomatic passport, which of course you don't, then I, I strongly suspect they would wonder what you were doing there. It is, Me personally or any, just anybody? Well, I mean, if they've heard of you, definitely you personally. Um, <laughs> but... I suspect anyone. I mean, it is impossible for me to exaggerate. And this is obviously an ongoing conversation, maybe one that we can have in future times on this podcast. But it is impossible for me to exaggerate the extent to which Las Malvinas uh, dominate the scene here, the conversations, the graffiti. I mean, I, there's not a day in my life that goes by where this issue isn't raised in one way or another. Right. And yet, you know, I, I grew up in the UK and I don't think I really ever heard the place mentioned. And I recently made the mistake of saying that 
to an Argentine, basically saying, look, you know, the thing for which <laughs> you are beyond passionate, for which you almost live, is a kind of, yeah. is, a, is a, a damp squib in, in the country that actually owns the islands. And as soon as I said it, you know, when you do that thing, when you say something, you just sort of, you know, I was a little loose on wine and, uh, and I was in a good mood and I was having a fun discussion. And then I said that and this moment I said, I thought, oh, that, that's not, that isn't very diplomatic of me. And his face just fell. And it was like the right. ultimate insults, like salt into the wounds, you know, I actually felt pretty bad. Well, I mean, you've, you've just said, uh, you know, the place that actually owns the islands. My understanding is that there is a constant, it may be like making English the official language of the United States, but there's a constant uh, political conversation about making it illegal to deny Argentinian sovereignty of the Falkland Islands. Uh, that would make it interesting for you getting into any conversation in the bar, presumably. Not to mention for me. It would. Um, and I would... You know, I mean, it's 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 not a joking matter here. You know, uh, I, I if I walk in somewhere and they find out I'm English, it's usually the second question I get asked, right? So the first question, the first question, like, why have you got such stupid hair? No, that that's the third question. Um, come on, <laughs> come on. Here, stupid hair like mine is is, is <laughs> that's, that's native. It's it's it is. I've gone native. Um, no, the first question, which I get asked every single day, um, to the point where, you know, I've been here four and a half years, and I pretty much count to make sure that, uh, that it happens to me every single day, because it just does. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I, I get asked what is basically translated as, what the fuck are you doing here? Right. And to people here, it, is, it just makes no sense why you would choose to come and live here. Um, there's this sort of prevailing myth that our country is paved with gold, you know, that the, right. the, the trees are made of chocolate or whatever it is that people want. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to constantly, constantly make the point, A, that I really like it here and that it's nowhere near as bad as they think. And secondly, right. that it's nowhere near as good as they think back where we're from. And yeah. certainly, to be blunt, yeah. The, the kind of brain drain here and the sort of the, the desire to get out of this place and to go somewhere else where, you know, you can make your billions or whatever. Right. And uh, you just think, oh, God, you've got such a shot coming. You know, it's kind of sad, but there you are. The question that pops up in my mind, which I never quite directly ask because I don't want to get into anything, but it, it's, mm. do you know what it's like there? Do you know what they're like? I, the, the impression you get from here is that these are the, 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 the most treasured islands in the world and that somehow the moment they gain possession of them, this country is going to be rich. Would you like to say anything about that? Anything carefully? <laughs> Remember where no, I am. I <laughs> um, obviously not, uh, not wishing to put my own uh, residency status uh, in the fire. But yeah, the, the Falklands... Um, I think might come as a bit of a surprise environment-wise to anybody living closer to the tropics. If, if it's been marked as the, as the promised land in any kind of uh, livestock and, um, you know, sort of flora and fauna prosperity, it's, it's a pretty tough life down here. Uh, it's obviously highly similar to 
um, gaucho living in remotest Patagonia. But you have to take jobs as breakfast DJs. Well, I mean, I, I, I like to make it sound like my arm was twisted. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, I don't think there are any other applicants. Um, but yeah, the idea that the idea that this is a, a land of, of milk and honey, uh, it is obviously highly treasured by nth generation Falkland Islanders. But the uh, the going was pretty tough here um, until, frankly, as I understand it, the 1980s securing of the the sort of fishing zones and then the extracting of fishing fees from uh, foreign fleets. Before that, I've I've heard people. Uh, on some of the outer islands saying that they could see literally Soviet ships or at least um, Eastern Bloc ships just parked up, completely hoovering the, the sea floor for absolutely anything. Um, and the Falklands government, I don't think, was getting any money from that back in the day. Now it makes a considerable amount of money from exactly that. Uh, there's been a little bit of prospecting for oil. I think that was then put on hold because the oil price uh, took a dive, so I suppose there might be a view that you know that have to be all around somewhere if you looked hard enough. But again, looking hard enough is a bit like you know farming sheep hard enough. It would be hard, expensive work, and it would be presumably a long way offshore. Uh, these would not be minor businesses in any sense. You've just been island hopping, haven't you? Uh, I hopped one whole island. Yep. Um, out of the 770-ish islands of the Falklands. We all know that. <laughs> I, of course, I, I went... Yeah. No idea that was true, but okay. No, I, I went even as far as West Falkland, uh, which is an extremely beautiful place, imagining anything like not quite the highlands of Scotland because the highest mountaintops here are 300 metres short of being mountains. Um, but it's, it's pretty bleak, pretty empty. Uh, and if the sun's out, uh, pretty attractive stuff. So I went across to do a few weeks of kind of solo trekking about. And essentially, uh, there's no public land here, really. So I had to, I cooked up a deal with the landowners of Port Howard Farm, which is one of the, the biggest farms. Uh, there used to be only about five or six farms in the Falklands, and they were all massive. Most of them got divvied up in the 80s, but this one didn't. Uh, so I basically made a deal with them for hiking and camping privileges and it threw in as, as though it was doing them any good at all, uh, some farm chores for about 10 days at the end of the holidays. Did you find yourself? Yeah. <laughs> I found myself lost in several occasions. Well, that's, um, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. No, uh, there was some, there were some curiosities about it. Uh, I had to carry about six or seven maps for, for one thing i should um i should point out here blank despite blank London, maps presumably that you were asked to fill in yes, if you, could, you were walking around the foremost cartographers of the land have given you this <laughs> just fill it in as you go around no the the place is is well mapped in one sense maps do exist there is no ordnance survey map of Falklands, though so these are all kind of ex-military maps and no kidding the ones i was using are based on aerial photography from the 1950s they have had some updates and extra lines drawn on them. But after about the first day, and this is, uh, this is always a temptation when you think that when you're lost or you're not walking as fast as you believed you would be, you start to think that the map is wrong. Um, I have it on reasonable authority that lots of the 
fences on these farms have moved around a bit in the intervening 60 years, which isn't all that surprising. I'd had to take about six maps, six big sheets. These are one to 25,000 jobs um, because Port Howard Farm, in a, in a miracle of unhelpfulness, lies across the outsides and none of the centres of six huge sheets of paper. So before I set out, I chopped off all the bits that I didn't need. And I was vaguely aware that there would at some point have to be some downside to this. And of course, discovered it quite soon, uh, which is that if you've cut off all the distant islands and mountains, almost certainly you will decide you need them as uh, navigation points. But there we go. So there was a bit of that. Uh, the, the grass was, was kind of knee high in various places. That was, that was a bit of a strain with a heavy backpack on. Uh, and the fences weren't where. I'm terribly sorry to hear that. That's uh, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's tough. Man. I see what you mean the, about the nice living, living. Yeah, it's rugged, it's rugged. But uh, no, one of the reasons this is not any kind of problem here is because, by and large, Falkland Islanders don't um, they don't walk anywhere. This is well attested. I don't think I'm going to be uh, knifed for being a snitch on this issue. There's a pretty high level one of car ownership. I mean, you know, it would definitely when I say sell high, this podcast. <laughs> the last words are, yes, um, there was a recent census in which various interesting questions and various many boring ones were asked. But yeah. one of the questions I found entertaining was how many cars are owned by your household? And the options, the tick box options were zero or one or more. Now, it's not betraying any particular secrets around here to say that one or more cars are typically owned by each person in any given household and right. they are all diesel four by fours by and large there are a lot of cars there are also a lot of cars that don't ever move off anyone drives for a variety of reasons but um yeah car ownership is, is pretty high uh nobody walks anywhere because hence why you have the... no ozone there <laughs> <laughs> so so then yeah no, nobody walks anywhere so it doesn't matter that outside of stanley there are no footpaths anywhere um no rights or anything Right. I mean, or anything like that. you could walk along so that there are several fine rows of mountains. Um, you would you would not set off. One of the reasons my bag was heavy is because you can't set off in your shorts and T-shirt because you have absolutely no idea whether you'll be sunbathing at the top or in a survival blanket. Um, and the weather forecast is unlikely to be able to help you out on that either. But, yeah, walking along a row of mountains could involve crossing the territory of five or six landowners. So you can look them all up in phone book. Can, into like landmine country as well, presumably. Uh, into former landmine country, certainly. So my nicely out-of-date maps said danger area in several places that I was fairly keen to walk. But as of last year, Christmas 2020, uh, the last landmines were removed. It should be acknowledged one or two. That was a long project. Uh, it should be acknowledged one or two have subsequently washed up on the beach. But I think that's probably that's within charming. the... Uh, yes, they're, they're fairly easy to spot. But uh, I think statistically... Don't they, just look like, uh, don't they just look like turtles? Or sort of... Yeah, cur curious, depending what type they are. Curious plastic plates with circular... I mean, these are by and large anti-tank mines. You would have to stand on them pretty hard. Uh, but still... Uh, if it's been floating around in the water for 40 years, you don't want to be looking too closely at the, the wiring or whatever, I guess. So they get um, got rid of by the explosives squad. And who Thank are they? Uh, military personnel, UK forces. Okay. 
who spend their days roaming the beaches for anti-tank mines. <laughs> no, they get called out when a dog walker or penguin spotter nearly stands on the landmark. Yeah, so there are things to do there. That's uh, that's encouraging. Haven't you been in quarantine? I mean, if you're keen on spotting penguins, pass a lot of time. Have you just Sorry, spent more? I said, have you just spent more time in quarantine, or is that my imagination? Are you always no, seem to be in quarantine. <laughs> Was it something I said? Uh, I, I haven't found yet how to broadcast from the house, which is a shame because it made the job a lot easier. But uh, and yet here we are doing it. Um, yes, live from his bed, your favourite breakfast host, Adam Smythe. Live from Port Stanley. It's Saturday night. While I was holidaying on my own, uh, I am blessed with both wife and four-year-old daughter. Uh, who had done me a great favour by going to the UK and visiting grandparents over Christmas, which was very sweet of them. Uh, this being the best part of the year, in even in the South Atlantic, uh, I had, and me having some work to do, I had volunteered uh, selflessly to remain here on my own. When they came back, it is standard policy here currently that you have to undergo at least a five-day quarantine when you get off the plane. You have all the usual stuff where you've got to be tested before you get on the plane. But then you get off the plane, you have a five-day quarantine at this end. Uh, if you have a small kid who, by definition, is not vaccinated, the rest of us are all triple jabbed, pretty much 100% of the population. Um, but yeah, small kids aren't jabbed, so that puts your quarantine up to eight days for whatever reason. And on day two, uh, my wife, who had got on the plane without COVID, uh, was informed by the, uh, by the swabbing nurse that she now had tested positive for COVID. So the score leapt from uh, eight days to 14 days at that point, except it was already day two. So it, it immediately became a 16-day quarantine instead of eight. Oh. Yes. Uh, as you say, when we came here, when we immigrated almost exactly well, this time last year, uh, we had a 14-day quarantine back then. So we have been through this, but we were better prepared this time. Uh, so I, having just had my month on my own, three weeks of which was holiday, felt it was probably playing a, a sensible hand domestically to volunteer to um, enter the plague house with my wife and daughter, uh, since Fiona had already been doing uh, solo parenting for a month. So yes, I, I, I walked into it and we crossed fingers and hoped that I wouldn't get diagnosed with COVID on the 16th day of the experiment because then I think another 14 days would have, <laughs> would have been added on and but that didn't all good. I mean I'm assuming you you have tested negative now I have indeed uh, that was yesterday lunchtime and by two minutes after that um, Fiona was at work and Freya was at nursery so that, uh, that suited me down to the ground and you were on a podcast which I, I, I didn't even leave the house I, mean, that's, I know how to party well, nobody understands this virus, but but thus far, I'm and I'm not absolutely convinced it can't be uh, it can't be passed on via podcast networks. So at the moment, <laughs> I'm in Buenos Aires. This is being recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia, and you're in Port Stanley, in the Falkland Islands. Oh, the one it sounds like you're trying to team me up for a joke about the podcast going viral. Obviously, no one would do such a thing. I can't However, believe that you stole my sign off line. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, and actually, I, I can't okay. believe you had a sign off line. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, the, but that was as close as I got, and you ruined it. Fair enough. Well, it's been a pleasure, man, as always.
Yes, we are on. Uh, well, mercifully, we're out of time. Uh, so, <laughs> so, Senor Smythe, thank you for joining us from uh, from from Las Malvinas. Uh, I will be sure not to tell anybody here that we did this. Um, well, I bet you will. Yeah. And uh, well, join us again soon. All right. Till next time. All right. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us for episode three of the Emma Gray podcast. See you again next time.